Hello and welcome back to God's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing uh, Lady of the Lake Chapter 4. So this chapter is following on from the previous chapter uh, and basically giving, uh, you know, uh, Geralt a swift kick up the bottom, getting him out of his complacency, giving him a wake-up call, and basically showing various aspects of people, uh, you know, falling in line with their complacency or taking action in various ways, uh, with the Lodge, Geralt, the villain group of Stefan Skellen and, and DeWitt and all them, uh, and the Hansa. You know, with Geralt, he's basically taking all these contracts, as he's been doing, and he basically comes across two things that give him a swift kick in the, up the ass. The first is probably the most controversial. Uh, Geralt, when he's going on this contract, here overhears, uh, you know, something, the, uh, Fringilla's medallion that she gave him to replace the Witcher medallion that, you know, he did away with last book because he's no longer a Witcher, you know, um, you know, sort of physically embodying his regression with this medallion, um, you know, he overhears the conversation and it turns out that the villain group is having a meeting um, you know, into Soth because it's it's part of the Empire, so it's safe, but also, you know, it, it has uh, very little spies in here because no one takes it seriously, and it's detached enough to for privacy. And Geralt overhears this conversation and finds out that Yennefer is being held by Vilgefortz. Um, and she's being held by Vilgefortz in Stiga Castle. And so he, that, that, that sort of gives him a kick up the ass to go, okay, even though in his head at this moment, he finds out later in the chapter that she didn't, he does think she betrayed him, uh, you know, and he gets confirmation that maybe Siri is not dead, which is what the, the prophetic dreams have been telling him, uh, but he's not really sure how to read the situation. You know, he really gets a kick up the, the ass and says, okay, okay, I need to do this. Um, I'm going to go save Yen. You know, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to make sure she's okay. Then he goes to fulfill his contract since he's already there, and the monsters give him an ultimatum. The monsters have formed an alliance. Basically, they have slumbered here and sort of rested here in Tusaw for ages, and no one has disturbed them. You know, they may have to deal with the night errands occasionally, but witchers pretty much avoid this area you know, it's peaceful here. Everybody is so drunk off their face that no one really cares. You know, it's not taken seriously, and so it's a nice place for these monsters to get respite. And here is Geralt in his depressed state, his regression as a person, going back to his old habits. The monster hunter, the witcher. And because of that, you know, he is killing off all these monsters in their population, and, in effect, the monsters is like, hey, please stop. And what's fun about this scene, his allusion to the monsters is, in effect, symbolic of his status. You know, the, the monsters say, you know, in order for us to trust you, we need you to get rid of your sword. A witcher is his sword. And so Geralt puts the illusion down of his sword and he breaks it. Complete falsehood. It wasn't. It didn't actually happen. But in effect, this is him redefining what a Witcher means. He's got to kick up the backside. He wants to go save Yen now, 
and the monsters are telling him to stop killing. So he breaks his sword, illusionary though it may be, uh, you know, becoming not the monster hunter anymore, choosing to redefine Witcher as a protector, a defender. Uh, and he gives the monsters a choice, you know, gives them an out. They don't take it because they're angry. And so he fights back. He protects, right? That is the way he now sees witchers. You know, he, last book, forsaked being a witcher. Uh, and he, I've talked about in previous deals where he's, you know, created this code for himself so he can stick to a certain pattern. And he's got the comfort blanket of the emotionless killing machine witcher. But now he's taking all of that, sort of mixing it up and taking the next step. And... Uh, instead of regressing, he progresses in his character development of redefining what a witcher is. He may not call himself a witcher anymore. That doesn't matter. He protects. He defends. He destroys evil. You know, in effect, as uh, Siri would put it. Uh, especially when she did last book. You know, she's coming with her own definition of a witcher, and he is as well. And because of that... Uh, you know, th this chapter is really when we get to see that Geralt, how far Geralt has not only come as a character, but also how much he regressed last chapter, how much of himself he was not being because he was stuck in this depressed state. And this, this leads into, you know, uh, everything with Fringilla. I brought up, you know, she looks, she looks like a combination of Siri and Yennefer, and there's an obvious sort of, you know, surrogate fulfillment there. And uh, there's this hint that she wants to be more than what she is. She's a honeypot, as I mentioned. But she's a honeypot that's grown feeling. She has taken that horrible, horrible step in the lie of actually giving a damn. And because of that, all of her decisions are clouded by that. She has, in a way, fallen, you know, for Geralt, but Geralt not simultaneously. His love for her, as he says, I think I loved you in my own way, was one of pity, for lack of a better word, for you were a surrogate. And I used you as a surrogate, but at the end of the day, I still care for your autonomy as a person, you know. And we have Frangilla, who's been so blinded by it, she makes mistakes. She has healed his leg. Uh, partially, he, you know, he, his leg will never fully heal. Uh, but she aided it so he can bend it better, so he no longer has as much pain as he used to. He still has got some pain. She gave him that new medallion, and she took his word as gospel. This is the ultimate sin of a honeypot. They can't get attached. And that's the thing about honeypotting in general is that it's a, it's a flawed method. It can work, but you have to have a very specific mindset to do it. Because at the end of the day, we are psychologically, you know, predisposed to formal connection. Uh, part of our body is always fighting against the natural instinct to continue the race, continue the legacy, continue the lineage. Um, and because of that, when we do procreate or we do have sex, we create a psychological bond. And in effect, you can't really look at this, the same person the same way again. 
there are those who are, you know, have that capacity to distance themselves, um, who can, uh, you know, work their mind in a certain way so they don't think like that. But we know that Geralt ain't. <laughs> we know that very, very well. And Fringilla has found out she's not there as well, that she fell for the oldest trick in the book. You know, she fell for her... Uh, you know, her captor, in effect. Not Stockholm Syndrome, but, you know, a version of that kind of thing. That's what leads to the mistake that uh, is then perpetuated in the legends, as we see with Nimue in the future, uh, with Raisun and Steiger Castle. Geralt lies, says, I found out where Vilgefortz is hiding. This is what I'm going to do. She begs him not to go. He refuses. She, you know, she asks for, you know, where Hilgefort is hiding. He's like, I'm not going to give you the information. Then she bribes him with the information, uh, you know, that of personal, you know, that Yen did not betray him, that she was stalwart. And she gave this information up, not of her free will, and she did it in effect to save him and to save Siri. And so then he relents. But knowing that there's a there's a sense that she can't be trusted, that there has to have been a reason for this, not only for his depressed mind seeking a surrogate for his, uh, you know, in effect, his wife and his daughter, you know, that uh, there has to be something more to this. So he gives her the wrong location. He says, Rice run complete falsehood. It's actually Steiger Castle. And so when she gives the information to the Lodge, the Lodge sends the strike force there to, you know, secure again, get rid of Vilgefortz, hopefully secure Siri before Geralt and his Hansa get there, and there's no difficulty, right? They they go there, and it's abandoned. It, it has nothing there. And the Lodge realizes that in Fringilla fell for the oldest trick in the book, she was taken for a ride. And uh, what's interesting is that Triss ends up getting like this interesting parallel with her because when Fringilla was giving the information, she was being far more explicit than she needed to be, far more explicit than Philippa wanted her to be, in an attempt to aggravate Triss, who it is known has this crush effectively on Geralt. And now... Trish and Fringilla have a parallel where they can bond over the fact that they've both fallen this for this person who didn't love them back, and they gave them their trust, and he revealed that the trust only works a certain way, that he only wants Yen, and that's all he's ever wanted. And so that's a fun parallel. Uh, to work with, and shows the dangers of honeypotting, uh, whereas we saw the benefits of it with the Vary de Rideau stuff and Contriella. And then, you know, we have the Hansa sort of getting ready, and all of them basically found a reason to stay, as I pointed out. But they were all willing to head out immediately. Regis was the only one that asked for something, and that's because he wanted an understanding. What's funny about the way Regis talked, especially in this chapter, to Fringilla, was he knew. He knew she wasn't to be trusted. He knew that she was honeypotting him. He knew all of this. He was simply a observer. This is who he is. You know, and 
he wants to understand why people are acting this way. Geralt did such an out-of-character move. He wants to understand. Of course, it's perfectly in character from an intimate understanding of his psychology as we the reader have, but Regis, well, he's an observer and he's guessed a lot about Geralt. He can't know the stuff that all the stuff that we know about Geralt. And so that's why he asked for clarification. And so I, I like how Regis was the only one that was simultaneously not particularly interested in Stegen. He had the succubus, but at the end of the day, he could easily go. Uh, and But he was also the only one that asked for clarification before he got up and started packing. It's a nice delineation, whereas Milva, you know, has the entire complication of the Baron, and she turned down his proposal <laughs> and all this stuff, and Angomay's made friends here, and Kahir feels at home. You know, they all were willing to throw it to the side in order to aid Geralt. Regis didn't really care one way or the other, but what he wanted to know was understanding. Dandelion decides to stay. These are two reasons for that. Um, and oh, I think it's worth talking about the overhearing of the conversation that I brought up previously. I mentioned that it was controversial, but I didn't really dig into it. And I think it works nicely with the Dandelion bit here because it's a writer's trick. It is um, very clearly the, uh, the author influencing events so that things would go a certain way. Um, I pointed this out in Babylon 5. There was a point in season 4 where everything's happening all at once, you know, and it's kind of just super convenient. Sheridan returns to the station after the ordeal in Zaha Doom, and it's just very, like, convenient, you know, that the people were all gathering to protest going to Zaha Doom with the rangers, uh, to, uh, you know, Garibaldi showing back up, to... Uh, Lording and, and Sheridan showing up at the right time and it's all very convenient and you just kind of have to go with it and enjoy the ride and the emotion of it but it's very clearly the writer making all this happen at the si same time in order to progress and here we have Geralt who conveniently is in a cave in which the bad guys are having a talk that he can overhear uh, to then be presented with the monsters having an alliance, to then get a kick up the ass from both sides, to then uh, decide to go, and then with Dandelion, as with the fight last time, choosing not to go, deciding to stay. And, uh, you know, he, he rides up to them, and you, you think that he's going to join them, and they let no, here's some money, I'm staying with my little weasel, you know, Anna Henrietta, um, you know, despite what Geralt has said last chapter about how uh, duchesses only marry musicians and fairy tales, he's still going to stay here. This is an entire thing of Geralt, without being pushed, would not have changed. This is who he is as a character. And so you could make it organic, but this book is already pretty long for a Witcher book. Uh, and so at the end of the day, you know, there, there might have been concessions that Sapkowski made on behalf of the editors or the publishers or any number of things. Or it could have been just him growing tired of the character being so stubborn and just finding the quickest, easiest, most efficient way to give him a kick up the ass. That is up to interpretation. At the end of the day, it is a writer shorthand and it is a bit of a narrative cheat. 
I don't mind it. Much like the Babylon 5 one, I didn't really mind it. I think it's just, it, it, it stinks of convenience more than anything. But it's not necessarily an inherently bad move. Not in the way that other narrative tricks and shorthand can be. You know, uh, deus ex machinas are, are universally loathed because of that. You can do deus ex machinas well. You just have to do them very clearly and and, and sort of uh, build up to it. But that that's the, that's the inherent problem with deus ex machinas. With this, this isn't near that level, but it's still like a narrative cheat to get them there. And then with the dandelion thing, I've mentioned many, many times before that this is a suicide mission. And at the end of the day, Dandelion's not a fighter. You know, he stands by Geralt's side no matter what. And he gave him money this time. But at the end of the day, if Sivkowski sends Dandelion, he's most likely going to be the first to be killed. And he's a character that Sivkowski cares about, wants to keep around for reasons. And, you know... Uh, whether everybody is going to die or not, I'm not going to answer because this is a spoiler section. But like, it is it is a thing where they are clearly going against this big evil mage and his minions, right? What is a guy with a loot gonna do? One who can act as a spy, but a, a traditional spy, not a James Bond spy, which means he gathers information. He doesn't know how to fight, and he's been in these kind of situations before and nearly got himself killed multiple times. When is enough enough? It is narrative shorthand. This character can't fit with what's coming next, but his friendship is so strong with the previous characters, we need to find some way to get him out. Uh, and I think that this chapter, because these two narrative sheets, you know, are right next to each other, effectively, I think is where this chapter, you know, is basically hit or miss for people. Either people really like it or really hate it. I am okay with it. I don't think it's the, the most organic way to do things, but I respect what's going to come next. Uh, and I respect what's come before. And I, as a writer, understand the problem with with characters not fitting uh there was um i believe i've mentioned this before in previous episodes but i'll, I'll mention it again just in case i haven't uh you know because i've been doing this for years so i tend to forget some things that i had a short story i was writing and in effect i had the you know i had the ending in mind uh and because the the nature of my writing i'm a discovery writer which means i don't outline or plan too heavily i have basic concepts ideas of characters ideas of scenes maybe an indie of mine i'm working towards but i think the characters tell me the story i had this indie of mine because to me that was the f that was the final page you know i was writing a comic it was a comic short and so it was like this this is the end this is the final shot this final panel we need to get here that will really sit with the reader and get them to really contemplate what the story was all about and as I was writing it, my character said no. She said, no, I'm doing this instead. And so I had to sit down and I had to think, how can I get her from point A to point B in an organic way in which the character is appeased and my ending that I want is appeased? And that took a lot of rewriting. That took a lot of working things out. I got in the end what I feel like was a nice compromise, letting the character have her moment that she needed. Long story short, you know, she 
was in a relationship with this person and uh, what I wanted was very detached from the romance. So she needed a reason to not have to go after uh, her beloved. And so I, I I had to rewrite and figure things out and the easiest, cheap way would be to eliminate the romance. But then that eliminates a lot of the meat of the early half of the short. So what you have, in effect, is a character that refuses to do what I want with an ending that works, but has to be gotten through to a different means. And so I figured out a way uh, in which, you know, she goes and uh, goes and completes the romance bit of it, and that ends in tragedy, which ends on the panel that I wanted to get to. But that was an entire conversation I had to have, not only with my work, but also with my character. Uh, as a discovery writer, that's the way things work. And, you know, planning doesn't always work out. Babylon 5 was very, very particular about this because of actor dropouts or budgetary constraints or whatever. JMS had to, you know, squiggle things out and, and work things out. Art is living. Art is a document that evolves and changes. And no matter how many plannings you do, you know, to, to quote, uh, you know, uh, many a general, you know, that uh, all plans, you know, immediately vanish um, um, upon confrontation with the enemy. So this is Sierkowski going through a similar thing, struggling with the way, because he has things planned. He's been foreshadowing certain scenes, a particular scene in my head that I'm thinking of that has been foreshadowed since very, very early on that is in this book. And I know where it's located and I know when it's going to happen. And like, he can't get there without certain things happening. But the characters don't want to do it. So he has to force them. And at times, that can seem artificial. If you're not a writer and you don't understand the complexities of what that's like, it can seem incredibly artificial. I don't mind it too much because I know of that problem. I've experienced that problem. I think there are more efficient, probably more organic ways to do it, but there could have been outside variables here. Again, pressure from an editorial, pressure from a publisher, etc., etc. I simply do not know the answers. It does make this chapter come off as a little clunky, and uh, is probably one of the weaker chapters in the saga, even though it is a good character piece for Geralt. Those two narrative cheats do hold it down a little, but it's still really, really good in my opinion. But it, it, it's something that you have to sort of accept. Artificiality of writing. Writing is a craft, a skill, as much as it's art. And that can be hard to comprehend if you're not in that community if you're not someone who does this thing. I am. I understand the difficulties of it, and therefore that I'm more lenient on it. I do think it is a bit cheap, and that's why this uh, this chapter is a bit less enthusiastic on my side, but at the end of the day, I'm glad the story we got, so I'll accept what pains come with it. No pain, no gain, as some would say. I'll see you next time. Till then, bye. Bye.